please give your attention to the reading of God's word. John chapter 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the, in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things, so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. We are continuing our time in the season of Easter. One of the things that uh, I have found as a deep joy in learning to celebrate the church calendar is that the things which we celebrate in the Christian faith, the things that are near and dear to us, do not just get one day. For example, even in our culture, Christmas is really the entire season. When I think of the month of December, I think of Christmas. 
And now I'm learning to think of it as Advent and then Christmas. Because the practice of the church throughout the ages, when she has used the church calendar, has been the life of Christ is so important to our world and our reality and our lives that we give ample time to celebrate it. So we looked last week at how Jesus Christ's resurrection defined a new reality for that day, that all the gospel writers have said that he was risen on the first day of the week. And Mark actually records that it took place in the morning. This is why Christians, ever since that first Easter, have gathered every Lord's Day in the morning. And um, it's not a rule of the scriptures, it's just a well-received tradition or practice. It's a habit. If you don't like the word tradition, you can just insert the word habit. It's a way of life. It's culture. It, it is religion externalized or religion worked out our fingertips of how we do life together as a people. So continuing on in this season of Easter, I wanted to reflect upon, because our readings were John 20 and 1 John 1, I wanted to reflect upon what Jesus did in demonstrating his power and proclaiming to his disciples peace. Our Lord has forever changed time and culture and the destiny or history of the whole world. And not only has he changed the history or the future of the whole world, he's also changed everything about how we carry our hearts before him. And that's what John highlights in, in this passage. He shows over and over again, Jesus is here to proclaim peace to his disciples. He's here to not only suggest it, but to give it. And that's what I think Jesus is doing. And John takes those experiences and records them. And then he tells his readers, this was given for you. It wasn't just for the disciples alone. It was written so that they would also believe. Just as Jesus tells Thomas to believe, so also John says, believe. They're, they're continuing or passing on an experience that they had with Jesus Christ in the flesh, and they're giving it away to us in the scriptures. Tangentially, this fits with our theme as a church, which we have been pursuing this entire year. Our vision for 2018 is that we would experience both personally, individually, and corporately a renewal of our experience of joy in the word of God, and in his spirit. And so we are de desiring to, to well up within ourselves an, a greater knowledge of how valuable these scriptures are and what they give to us. The scriptures are not merely a collection of stories which were written by educated people in order to communicate or to create a reality. These are historical accounts that God himself did and then he used his spirit to inspire those people who experienced them firsthand to faithfully, accurately, perfectly record them, not just to give us facts about Jesus, but as John says in his epistle, to communicate the life of Jesus. You see, as, as Protestants, we love the scriptures. We hold to doctrines like the scriptures are inerrant, and that's true. The scriptures don't have any errors. The scriptures are accurate. The scriptures are clear, although confusing in some places. 
But what the scriptures are is much more than just inerrant. They communicate the life that was manifested in the world. They communicate to us who Jesus Christ is. So I want to look at four things today. First, I want to look at the disciples' fear as they are found here in this room and how Jesus demonstrates his power and that power of coming into a room which was locked and then proclaiming to them peace. Jesus comes to his disciples cowering in fear and answers their two great needs, which is unbelief and fear. And then Jesus comes and comes again a week later and settles not only the rest of the twelve's fears, but Thomas's fears particularly. If you've ever been a Christian for a long t- period of time, you may have heard the phrase doubting Thomas. And I, I don't think it's a good practice to malign any of the twelve with a, an adjective like doubting. We don't call him doubting Peter. We don't call him denying Peter. Because what Jesus does here is he restores Thomas. Just like in the next chapter of John, John 21, Jesus restores Peter. Jesus is doing something to Thomas, and John records it for our benefit. So we're going to look at that in a little bit of detail. And then finally, I want to look and emphasize that the goal of John's gospel, and from that we'll extrapolate to really what is the goal of the scriptures? Why do we have them? Why were they given to us? After Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene in John's account, Mary goes and tells the disciples, I have seen him. We saw this last week, how in Mark's gospel, Mark records that the women heard from the angels that he's not here, he is risen, and go. And we saw how that was a small microcosm of what the Christian life is. We're to behold the resurrection by faith and then immediately turn and proclaim the reality. This is what the first-hand witnesses were called to do. And so Mary has this same pattern. She sees the Lord in the garden, and then she begins to proclaim to the rest of the disciples, I've seen the Lord. John then highlights here at the beginning of our reading in verse 19, the condition of the souls of the disciples. They were in great fear for what was about to take place. On that evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And I want to just pause there at the first half of that verse. Why were the disciples afraid? They had heard that Jesus had risen from the dead. And last week we saw how no one expected the resurrection. The women who came to the tomb brought spices with them because in those days, just like in the time of the Egyptians, they would embalm bodies with preservatives so that that body would not decay. And so they're coming to this tomb and they bring their spices with them because they expect him to be there. But he's not there. And so now at this point, the disciples hear this from these women and they think to themselves, oh no, we've never heard anything like this. We've known these women all of our lives. We can trust them. We know they're not given to to myths or stories It can't just be mass paranoia. There were three of the women there. What is going on? So you can imagine the sort of thoughts that are racing through the disciples' minds. Maybe someone else stole the Lord. Maybe the Romans are trying to cause an upheaval in the Jewish religious system. And what about the final terrible proposition? 
what if he really did raise from the dead? Do you, do you see how earth-shattering that is? It's hard for us as Christians because we now live in a world in which a dead person has come back to life never to die again, which we'll emphasize in a few minutes. But before that taking place, it is kind of like the end of the world. It's like gravity stops pulling things down to the earth. That's how earth-defining or earth-shattering the resurrection is for them. They're in total fear. I think that the chief fear that they had was they were in a great fear of a reprisal from the Romans or the Jewish leaders. They thought that the nation which crucified their Lord would soon come after them. And we see this in John's account in John 18 when Peter is denying. Peter is following Jesus on the periphery and Jesus is moving closer and closer to his death and Peter is just on the coattails of the events in the outer courts and he's denying it because there are people there who know who Peter is and twice he says, indeed three times he denies, I am not the man. I'm not one of his followers. And so Peter clearly shows the danger that they were in. Whenever they would go after one of these religious leaders of that time, before Christ, many false messiahs did come and many false messiahs came after him. They would not just kill the the figurehead. They would go after every one of their their leaders or their, their followers. So these disciples are in great fear that they themselves will be apprehended. If the Roman or Jewish authorities thought there was a conspiracy of Christ's body being taken, who would be the chief subjects? It would be his disciples. And so they hear that he's risen from the dead. We proclaim it today as good news. I'm not so sure the disciples thought it was good news because they had to deal with, okay, where's his body? What's really gone on here? And so they're in great fear and they're holding up together in this room. Amazingly, however, something's different than the night of the crucifixion. They were in great fear at the crucifixion and were scattered. But here, they're still in great fear, but mysteriously, wondrously, they've been gathered. And I think the reason is is that God by his Holy Spirit is about to do something And so they're found in this room together. They're drawn together. They're holding concert or they're they're probably discussing what are we going to do about this. John doesn't leave us in any suspense at all. He answers, he states the fear of the disciples and immediately provides the answer. Continuing on in verse 19, the doors were locked because of their fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Isn't that an interesting verse? John goes to great lengths, and indeed he'll say it again, to say that the doors were locked. They didn't want anyone coming in. John then records, Jesus came in. There's an earlier place in the book of John where a very similar thing takes place. Jesus is surrounded by a mob who is trying to arrest him, and it says that he escaped their grasp. He just kind of slipped by. The same exact thing is happening today. Jesus is the one in John's gospel who can quite literally walk into a room with locked doors. This is an amazing thing that our Lord is doing in presenting himself alive, never to die again, and yet he transcends the boundaries. I believe that he quite literally appeared because he can do whatever he wants. 
But I also believe there is a metaphorical reading of that idea, of that historic reality that we have to press out. Jesus is the one who can surpass any obstacle. There's no barrier. If we were preaching during the time of the Iron Curtain, some of you know what I'm talking about when I say Iron Curtain. I'm sure pastors went to this verse all the time to encourage their people when they were going into closed countries. There aren't any more closed countries after the resurrection. We're going to hear next week from Tom and Albert from Bangladesh about how difficult it is to be a Christian there. Guess what? Christ walks among those churches just as he does ours. Jesus goes wherever he wants now. And that is an amazing thing that John has given us. He's defeated death. Nothing can stop his purposes. The cause of Christ is going to move forward. Jesus Christ's power knows no limits at all. And John gives us this historic event. He writes it faithfully and carefully so that we would be able to be perceiving of the reality. Because he has such a great power, that power that Jesus has then becomes the peace which he proclaims to the disciples. Just as he calms the raging seas earlier in the gospel, he then says to the disciples, peace be still. What did he do when he was on the water with the disciples? He proclaimed, peace be still, and the winds and the waves stopped. The Psalms in two places actually say that's something that only Yahweh does. He calms the raging seas. He causes the storms to be stilled. And then Jesus does that in the Gospels. And he does that again here. There's a turmoil in their hearts that is raging. The entire nation rejected Jesus Christ. We are known as his followers. We did three years of public ministry. If you want to think of it like this, there are like FBI wanted ads with our faces on them in every town. Everyone knows who we are. We're next. And Jesus comes to them. He says, peace, be still. He doesn't just suggest the peace. He proclaims it to them. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. Don't, don't read too fast here. John is telling you the timing of when they recognized the Lord. It was after, he, when he had said this, he showed them so that these are time words, when, and then he uses the word, then the disciples perceive the Lord. Knowing their unbelief, Jesus hunts down their unbelief and proclaims the reality of his life. He shows them undeniable proof. You, you saw me, some of you saw me on the cross from a distance. You knew I was crucified. You knew I was speared. Here it is. This is the evidence living in the moment. What an interesting thing that Jesus now has a resurrected body and yet he bears the marks of the atonement. Isn't that very interesting? John later in the Revelation talks about this lamb who's in the heavenly throne room and he uses this phrase that I think is so beautiful. He says, a lamb as if he had been slain. Not staying slain, had been slain and now has come back to life. Only after seeing his hands inside do the disciples believe. And this is why I think it's important that we do not call Thomas Doubting Thomas. Now to be clear, I'm not saying that he wasn't doubting. 
it's clear that he was doubting. The point is, we, we often use these phrases to, to kind of describe a touchstone, of rea- a, a touchstone of reality. But here in these scriptures, Thomas is simply asking for the other evidence that the other 12 had. Once they recognized him, he then blesses them again and commissions them. He says, peace one time, peace be with you. And then he blesses them again with that same peace. And then he commissions them to go into the world. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. What was Jesus sent to do on this earth? That's a very difficult question if you know your gospels because there's many answers. In the high priestly prayer, Jesus says, I have accomplished the work that you have sent me to do. I kept them in your truth. I lost none of them but the son of perdition, right? I lost none of them but Judas. Nevertheless, there's, that's not the only answer. He doesn't just come to gather a 12. He also said to the father, I've proclaimed your name. I've glorified your name. He said to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But what else did Jesus come to do? He didn't just come to make an atonement. That's true. In fact, that's his chief priestly and mediatorial work. He made an atonement. He satisfied the wrath of God. He defeated sin. None of those things can the disciples do. But the thing that he does in sending them just as the Father sent the Son He sends them to seek and to save that which was lost. That's what Jesus does in summarizing his mission on the earth. They are to take this news. They're to go everywhere and to proclaim that news. Verse 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. What what an amazing thing that's taking place. He says, peace, peace. I'm sending you somewhere. Take the Spirit with you as you go operate in the same way that I operated. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is forgiven. It is withheld, excuse me. For Protestants, this is probably our most difficult verse to exegete in this passage. And the reason why is because for a very long time, certain traditions have interpreted this as the disciples have the ability to say, that's forgiven, but that isn't forgiven. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing in this passage. Jesus is not granting these people to forgive sins. He's not granting them an exclusive power. Why? Because we know in the Gospels, Jesus says, only God can forgive sins. What I think he is doing, rather, is he's investing in them a responsibility to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. They have a duty. They've been taken hold of. They have to proclaim the possibility sins can be totally forgiven. Sins can be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And he's essentially giving them a responsibility to carry this message into the world. Just as Christ's mission was to glorify the Father's name, so also these disciples are to be going to glorify God's grace. Ephesians 1.6 says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. That is the apex of the revelation of 
who God is. He is the God who is loving and forgiving and wanting people to be reconciled to him. And so the chief praise that we will be saying forever and ever around that throne is, worthy are you, for you were slain. That's the chief point of our song in heaven. It is the praise of his grace. It's the praise of his grace. It's the praise of his forgiveness. That's what I believe Jesus is doing in saying to them, you have this responsibility to proclaim forgiveness into this world. Looking at Thomas's doubt now, I want to encourage us to think about what Thomas was asking for. As I said earlier, Thomas is asking for the same evidence. While we often call Thomas a doubting Thomas, or, or we use that as his little modifier for how we talk about him, uh, it's not the case that John records this in order to shame Thomas. I think John records this in order to show us what's necessary if anyone believes. And why do I think that? Well, really, it comes at the end of our reading. But in fact, John's emphasis here in this passage is to say that none of the disciples believed until after they saw Jesus raised from the dead. It says that they were speaking with him. He said, peace be with you. And only after he shows them the mark in his hands and the mark in his side, do they actually recognize the Lord. Verse 24, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. It's an important thing to show up for church on Sunday mornings. I'm just kidding. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Rewind the tape back to what happened with Mary Magdalene. I have seen the Lord. None of the disciples believe. Then the Lord comes, he proclaims peace, he settles the storm, he stills it and puts it to to an end, and then he shows them his hands and his side. And then they turn to Thomas eight days later, and in in the way that I read this period, uh, it's, it's a week, we'll get there in just a second. They say to him, we have seen the Lord. What's his response? Praise God? No. His response is, he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and, the, and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's a very clear statement. There is no room for, there's no wiggle room in that statement. That is cut and dry. He is saying, unless I see physical evidence, unless I behold Jesus with my eyes, and touch him, I cannot believe, I will not believe. While this is not commendable, Thomas is simply asking for the same evidence the other apostles received. But Thomas's position is extremely untenable. Why is it untenable? If you've ever been a student of apologetics, you may have heard the difference between atheism and agnosticism. There's a difference There are two phrases used, and they're technical terms, but atheism is just a a very simple phrase. It means no, ah, theism, or theist, no God. An atheist asserts, states, believes that there is no God, whereas an agnostic says, I don't know whether there is a God or not. Strong A, atheism, 
is a totally untenable position. Why? Because what atheism means is God does not exist. It is a positive claim of knowledge. It is a, it is a belief that says, I know that God cannot exist. And indeed, I know that he does not exist. Therefore, the apologists often say things like this, that if an atheist was able to accurately say God does not exist, that atheist would have to have met every being who has ever lived or who has ever been. That's what, that's what an atheist is claiming. This is how untenable Thomas's position is. He's saying, I will never believe unless I see it for myself. What's the possibility? Jesus could have risen and simply left Thomas and never come back to Thomas. Thomas is saying, unless Jesus appeals to my senses, I cannot believe. And therefore, Thomas is basically asserting, I have the ability to declare reality. Can't, I cannot believe unless I see it. Thomas asserts that unless he experiences it personally, it simply cannot be real. After another week, as John Gill writes in his commentary, citing Josephus, the historian of the Jews, around the time of Christ, they used, just like we talked about last week, a, a trick of math or a way of speaking that is uncommon to us. For example, when a baby is born, that baby's first birthday is 12 months later. But we use the word first year of their life to describe zero to 12 months, right? So they've had one birthday and that one birthday comes after 12 months. But while they have had zero years so far on the earth, we use the word first to describe that year. Do you see how there's an, in computer science, we call this an off by one error. We do this all the time. I, my code is filled with these problems. Um, <laughs> The reason why is because it's hard to talk about time. Time is just a very difficult thing to talk about. I could say eight days from now, and you could hear Monday, and another person could hear Sunday. That's what I think John is writing. He's saying eight periods of time, eight intervals of sun going down and sun rising later, that is another Lord's day. John highlights, nevertheless, if you don't, if you don't buy that, that's fine, but I, I think it's clear and I think it's real. After this, John highlights Christ's power again to be present with his people. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. This time, Thomas shows up. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Why does Jesus do it again? Because he's hunting down that in Thomas which does not yet believe. Once again, Jesus proclaims his peace be with them. He does not suggest it for a time or a few hours. He says, peace be with you. And he doesn't take it back. Remember when he sent out the, the 70 or 72 in Luke chapters 10 and 11? They go out and he gives them a command. He says, when you enter a house, proclaim to them peace. But if a man of peace is not found in that house, take that peace back with you. Now, that's a very confusing teaching, and I don't have time to fully understand or explain what he meant by that. But he did tell them to do that. When he commissioned them to go throughout Israel, he told them to proclaim peace to the houses they come to, to say, the God that we are proclaiming to you is reconciling you to himself. 
And here he says, peace be with you. And he doesn't take it away. When Jesus leaves, he wants his peace to remain with the disciples. I think this is an extremely important thing to notice. And although so much is built up in just one simple word, with, we have to understand this as his desire. He doesn't want them to be in fear and he doesn't want them to stay in unbelief. In place of Peter's three denials, Christ comes to his disciples and he proclaims thrice peace. Whenever something is repeated in scripture three times, it's communicating that whoever is speaking it wants to make very clear the fullness of Christ's peace is to be with his people, with his disciples. He's not wanting that peace to be removed from them. He wants them to remain in it. He has faced their death, defeated it, and therefore communicates his life to them. In 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-five, it says that the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That is to say that his body was no longer fed by physical necessity. It was no longer fed by food. It's now a incorruptible body. And he communicates that as he is the life-giving one. He proclaims peace to them. And then he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. We have to rewind our story and go back to Genesis What happened when God created Adam? He formed Adam with his hands. And then it says he breathed into him the breath of life. That's what Jesus is doing in a sense here. He's giving them his life in this chapter. Therefore, out of great love, Thomas encounters Jesus. Jesus comes to encounter that which is in Thomas, which does not believe. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put, your, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Isn't it interesting how Jesus does exactly what Thomas had asked for? And this tells us a few things. Jesus isn't in the room when Thomas says, I won't believe unless I see. Jesus knows the needs of his flock completely. He is able to hear in every place and he is able to answer the problems of all of his people. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. What a wonderful thing that has just happened to Thomas. He, it doesn't even say that he actually did what Jesus asked, but he does believe, right? John, John's recording the chief need here. Thomas needs to recognize Jesus as Lord and God. Thomas therefore acknowledges Jesus as the risen Lord. He says, my Lord, a term used for Jesus before this, and my God. He acknowledges Jesus as the Son of God come in the flesh and alive once again. Jesus then points forward to all those who believe after Thomas. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We actually have a song, the song we sang this morning, the first song, blessed are those who have not seen and yet sing hallelujah. The reason why is because Jesus is saying there are going to be coming after you, Thomas, people who you're going to proclaim to. And just as he said to to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but it was my father in heaven. Jesus is putting his finger on the chief issue that John then later uses as he closes this chapter. It must be a revelation of God himself to the heart of the unbeliever before he can truly believe in the resurrection. 
The resurrection, therefore, has changed everything about our world. Before the resurrection, all men die and stay dead. Occasionally, in the life of Israel, one or two times, someone has come back to life. One time it happened with Elijah. Another time it happened when someone was thrown on the bones and they came back to life. But then later, I tell you quite clearly, those people later died. What happened in the resurrection is Jesus changed the reality of our entire world. We live in a world in which not all dead people stay dead. There's one person who died and came back to life. He broke the law of death. That's what he, he changed the entire world that we live in. We live in a world where it's no longer true that dead people stay dead. <clears throat> and Paul reasons this way, that if Christ was not raised, then you are still in your sins. Why? Because if Christ was not raised then the resurrection of Jesus cannot become the resurrection of his people. Therefore, you're still dead in your sins because your sins have produced a physical death which is coming to all of us. And therefore, you have no escape from the grave. Nevertheless, Jesus has completely changed everything. In the resurrection, Jesus has become the man who will never die again as Paul records in the book of Romans. And because he lives, we can live in him. It is for that purpose that John writes his gospel. Jesus has just told Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. And in fact, it's stated as a command. He's saying to Thomas, notice who I am in front of you. And then John says that exact same thing at the close of this chapter. I love the gospel of John because this is kind of, if I'm thinking about what's going on in John, it's kind of like a presumptive close. It's like he lands the plane uh, and then he takes off again. The very next chapter in, in John 21, there's this story of, of Christ reconciling Peter and the disciples as they're fishing. But here, this could be, unless God wanted to record John 21, this could be the end of John's gospel. It, it comes to such a perfect close here. Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. At the close of John's gospel, he says, if everything was recorded, the entire world could not contain the record. That's a very bold statement because the world is a very big place. What that says is Jesus is still doing things. The reason the world can't contain it is because Jesus is constantly still showing up to Thomas in a sense. Uh, I'm speaking metaphorically. Jesus is revealing himself to his people. How does he do that? Does he appear to them like he appeared to Paul? No, he doesn't. John's gospel was written that the glory of God in the sending of Jesus Christ to pay an atonement and to defeat death would be seen forever to the praise of the glory of his grace. He was sent as the word from God and sent so that he would gather to himself a company of people who John in the opening of his gospels says are the children of God. For as many as believed in him, he gave them the right to become the sons of God. And therefore, John is saying, I've participated in that mission. Jesus came to bring sons of God who come by believing in him. And therefore, I've written my gospel partnering with the Lord's mission that you would be able to believe in him. Because they cannot believe unless they hear 
and they cannot hear unless someone is sent. And they have nothing to say if they're not saying the scriptures. So John is saying, I want you, my readers, to believe in the Lord. When writing his first epistle, therefore, John explains his writing, his epistle, as a communication of their experience. We talked about this last week with Paul. Paul said to the Corinthians, and we use this image of the latter, Paul, Paul is here in the middle. And Paul says, I delivered to you, Corinthians, that which I first received, that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the cup. And he uses that same phrase later in Corinthians. I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died. And then he goes through the entire litany of what the gospel was, that Christ showed himself to Peter and then the 12 and then 500 brothers at a time and then to me as one untimely born. And so John is saying, I'm doing the same thing. I'm writing this epistle because we want to testify of what we've experienced personally so that it could become your experience. And this is my real aim this morning is that we would become more deeply aware of how precious of a book this is, that we would become people who avail ourselves, who give ourselves to the reading of God's word. We don't just touch it every once in a while. We don't just read it out of obligation or trying to get through it once a year. We come to this book because we want to know and commune with our Lord. And we do that in such a way as it becomes the most important thing. It becomes better than our food. Verse one, that which was from the beginning. Remember John one, if you, if you have John one, in the beginning was the word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was made manifest. In the beginning was the word. And the word, verse 14 of John one, the word tabernacled among us. Verse two of First John 1, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to you and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John is not talking about what they did in person in their personal preaching. This is his introduction to his epistle. He's saying, we're proclaiming to you the experience of Jesus Christ that we've had. That life which was in the world we saw him manifest, we experienced him, we touched him, we saw him, and now we proclaim that to you. And he's saying we're proclaiming it in this epistle, not just in our speech. Though through the scriptures, the apostolic experience has been faithfully communicated concerning the life of Jesus Christ to those who read. And by reading and receiving these things, we come to have fellowship with God. That's exactly where John goes. Verse three, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you for what reason? So that you too may have fellowship with us. Isn't that amazing what he's saying? He's saying that by reading this letter, you can have fellowship with the apostles so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. It's much better. Remember last week, if you were here, I said, when you, when you think about doing ministry and you think about sharing the gospel, you're not just doing it at a high school with John Luke or at a college with Stephen Leopold. You're participating in the grand scheme of redemption. You are, you are trying to commend Christ to other people. And that's what John says here 
in his epistles. You have fellowship with us. And then he goes way beyond just acquaintance with the apostles. We have fellowship with God. You see, the resurrection does not just deliver us from the grave. It does not just make plain that we are not going to go to hell. It gives us what we never had is a life with God. We've been, given, we've been invited into the experience of who God is. Verse 4, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. At the end of, verse, uh, at the end of chapter 20, John says, we are writing these things, I, I am writing these things so that you may believe in his name. And at the end of the prologue of his epistle, he says, I'm writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Isn't that an interesting connection? That the apostles' greatest joy is when those who they're preaching to come to life? Why? Because in their reception of life, the disciples find life. There's a greater expansion of that community of life with Christ. Though we did not see Jesus Christ with our eyes, as he said, we are still blessed in believing. I love this passage of scripture because it dispels one of the greatest qualms in in evangelism, which is, well, they got to see it and I didn't get to see it. And that's true. That 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 is true, that you can't deny that. They, the apostles saw Jesus Christ resurrected, and we cannot see Jesus Christ resurrected right now. Nevertheless, according to what John wrote in his epistle, we're not at a disadvantage. Have you ever thought this? I wish I was one of the twelve. I frankly am very glad I was not one of the twelve, because you see what Peter did over and over again. And I'm very, very appreciative that my sins are not recorded for, for the entire church. But what I've been given in the scriptures is much greater access than what they had. Remember, there were many times when the disciples did not believe. And in fact, Luke records, basically in John 21 as well, Peter essentially says, I'm going back to fishing. How much more wonderful of a gift do we have than if we saw Jesus manifested in the flesh? One day we will see him, and that's where I want to close. Our fellowship with the church worldwide is based upon a simple fact that Jesus Christ has come and proclaimed peace to those who were in animosity. In a similar fashion, therefore, to Jesus and John, Peter in his epistle answers the same problem. He commends his fellow believers with the preciousness of what they've received and what has taken place by the grace of God. And here's where I want to end. 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9, though you have not seen him, you love him. What more evidence of the activity of the Holy Spirit in producing conversion could there be? I do not know him, but I love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is the same Peter who faced extreme persecutions. He's saying, we are rejoicing with a joy that is sustained even in the midst of persecution. Verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What a wonderful promise we've been given in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. We thank you 
that you have communicated these things to us faithfully as your spirit inspired the apostles to write and to record clearly and faithfully and accurately everything concerning the word of life which came into the world. We thank you that by these wonderful writings, we have been given entrance into that which we, we don't have any fellowship with due to time. We thank you, Lord, that even though separated by time and by distance, we do have fellowship with these people because your spirit has caused us to have our eyes opened to who Jesus Christ is. We pray, Lord, that we would be ones who walk in that newness of life. And Lord, we ask that this year, as a people, you would renew us in our love for the word, not just as a discipline, but as an avenue by which we commune with you and your son. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.